0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. will be thinking about this chapter in connection to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, this final Lord's Day on the Lord's Supper, as it takes up a number of questions pertaining to the Lord's Supper. And I want us to think upon those questions, and even this chapter, in terms of a phrase that the Heidelberg Catechism uses, and that phrase is honoring God's covenant. And the question before us is, how do we honor God's covenant at the Lord's table? How do we honor the Lord's covenant in the Lord's Supper? And we'll be reflecting on that under five points once we get there. Um, But first, I want to draw from Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read the whole chapter. Actually, we'll read through verse 25. How about that? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, and here he's speaking about the Mosaic law in terms of the tabernacle and the temple and the Old Testament priesthood. These are shadows, as he says here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "'Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure.'" For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, drawing near, so far from God's Word. We're going to turn now to the back of our hymnal, to Lord's Day 30 in the Catechism. You should find that on page 886, 886. As I just said a moment ago, here we have uh, the final Lord's Day dealing with the Lord's Supper, and it takes up a number of questions that we might have regarding the Supper, First, regarding its um, relationship or its difference, rather, to the Roman Catholic Mass. And then secondly, the question of who shall attend, who shall come to the Lord's Supper to partake. These are two important questions, uh, though it comes out in three questions here. So, Lord's Day 30, beginning with question 80. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answers. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is to be worshiped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Question 81. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Question 82. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Uh, Catechism states here, our duty in coming to the Lord's table and in approaching our God is that we might honor his covenant, that we might honor God's covenant. Now God's covenant, as I know all the children know from our CCA uh, class even this past week, That a covenant is a relationship that God sovereignly establishes and guarantees by his word. Now, that definition can sound rather uh, cold in a sense, but really at the heart of God's covenant is that relationship. God meets with us. God comes and condescends to us and in that covenant gives us himself. We see this pictured for us in the Lord's Supper. Last week we had said that in the Lord's Supper, we not only receive the benefits of Christ, but we receive Christ himself, right? He gives himself to us within the bounds of his covenant for our joy and for our eternal salvation, right? These are the things that Christ gives to us in his covenant. And because this is a relationship that God has established, right? God is the one who meets with us. God is the one who comes down to us, who condescends to us, and therefore within that covenant we are to honor God, right? Those who are recognizing God's majesty, recognizing God's power, recognizing the greatness of God's love to us, and so within the bounds of that covenant we are called to honor him. And honor is not a word that I think we often hear around us today, but yet a very important word for us to think about. Now, the sermon is not going to be on honor, but the scriptures do have much to say about honoring. Children, honor your father and your mother, right? It recognizes that they are an authority over you. And yet, your mother and your father love you, right? They come down to you. They meet you. They get on their knees and play with you, right? And so, too, we are to honor God, though he comes and meets with us in a very kind and loving way. Paul instructs the church to outdo Uh, showing honor to one another. And the point here is that we're not to lord over one another because none of us here is any superior to anyone else. We're brothers and sisters, equal before God. And therefore, our desire ought to be not to lord over one another, but to honor one another and to recognize um, each uh, each of our um, responsibilities before God. So honor is a very important thing. And... Beyond honoring our parents, beyond honoring one another, we are first and foremost to honor the God of the covenant and to honor God's covenant. And I want to reflect, we don't have a ton of time uh, this morning to do so, but I want to reflect from the Catechism and uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 10, on what it looks like to honor God's covenant at the Lord's table. Remember, the Lord's Supper is just a picture of the gospel that we believe. It depicts to us the gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for us. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we want to honor God's covenant and in so doing honor what Christ has accomplished and done for us. And So there's five things that I want to draw out for us as we think about honoring God's covenant in the Lord's table. First, we honor God's covenant in the Lord's table by recognizing and believing that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins once for all. Once for all is the key word that we see repeated throughout Hebrews 10 and also in chapter 9 as well. Here in chapter 10, the author is contrasting and comparing the sacrifices under the Old Testament with the Mosaic covenant and the sacrifice that Christ offered up once for all. He reminds the people that long ago, God's people would offer up on the Day of Atonement a sacrifice. The high priest would would slaughter a goat and the blood would be sprinkled on the altar. And this would be done, but its efficacy, its power would last only a year. It would be repeated again and again. And the author is saying here that the reason for that is because, one, it looked forward to a greater sacrifice and looked forward to um, something that was much uh, to be permanent and done once for all. And so you have a sacrifice happening once a year, but the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. People still had the consciousness of their sin, and so it was repeated time after time. But when Christ came, the one to whom all of these sacrifices looked, Christ came and he sacrificed himself once for all. When Christ hung on the cross, he said that it is indeed finished. His work is complete. It is unrepeatable. It does not need to be done again. It is once for all. This is what the catechism tells us. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And it contrasts that with what the Roman Catholic Mass teaches, right? It says there that, but the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ still be offered for them daily by the priests, right? It's a return to the shadows of the Old Testament and it is a denial of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, now the reason behind this, and there's more, so much more to say, but the reason behind this, uh, the reason why the Roman Catholic Church uh, denies this reality, is because it denies the fact that God's people could ever have assurance of their salvation, right? If Christ has been sacrificed once for all, if he has completed this, the, the salvation of his people once for all, in a moment of, in history then we could have assurance that our sins are indeed forgiven. It doesn't need to be repeated over and over again. The, our, our consciences could be cleansed of our sin and we can have peace of conscience with God. But the Roman Catholic Church said that the greatest heresy taught by the Protestants is that they teach assurance. That you could know that you are saved, that you can have assurance of being right with God. And therefore, this is reflected in their view of the Roman Catholic Mass. You need to continually come daily to have your sins forgiven if you are to have um, any salvation. And so we instead honor God's covenant by recognizing that Jesus Christ, whose death is at the center of that covenant, that he sacrificed himself once for all, never to be repeated again. And therefore, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's not a sacrifice that is being made. It's not that Christ is being re-sacrificed when we come to the Lord's Supper, but we are partaking of the once-for-all death of Jesus Christ, his bloodshed once for all. And so we honor God's covenant by acknowledging Jesus' sacrifice at the heart of it as having been done once for all. It also means within that same point That we honor God's covenant as we recognize that and in turn then find peace for our own consciences before God. To know that we truly have in Jesus' blood been reconciled to God once for all. That today I am justified. Today Today I am justified and I will never be more justified than I am right now in God's sight, in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to honor God's covenant. Secondly, to honor God's covenant means to recognize that when I come to God's table, I am entering into the heavenly places. so That I come not before an earthly table, but before a heavenly table. Again, this is a point that is emphasized all throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, the author himself summarizes the main point that he's trying to make in this letter in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. He says there, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In heaven. And the word heaven or heavenly is repeated a number of times throughout this letter. And we'll just look at a few of those those verses. In Hebrews uh, chapter 3 verse 1. It says to the church, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you have a heavenly calling, which means that your destiny, the goal to which you are striving for is not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. You have a heavenly calling. Then in chapter 4, verse 14, regarding Jesus Christ, it says, since then we have a great high priest, namely Jesus Christ, who has passed through through the heavens, right? He has gone through the visible heavens into the unseen heavens where God dwells. In chapter 7, verse 26, it says there that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unsaned, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We also see in chapter 9, verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Two more verses here. Chapter 11, verse 16. Speaking of uh, the saints of old and us today, it says that they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, right, corresponding to our heavenly calling. And then lastly, chapter 12, verse 22 says there that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, right? And so the author of Hebrews is reminding us that, one, we have a heavenly calling because that is where Jesus has gone as our forerunner, right? He has entered not into what is made by hands, but he has entered into heaven itself. And it's there that Jesus is drawing us, he is bringing us, so that we honor God's covenant then when we recognize and we come to the Lord's table, we are approaching our Father in heaven, that Jesus Christ has placed before us a heavenly meal. Notice again what the catechism says. The Lord's Supper declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who is with his true body now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. Right? That is where God desires us to worship him, in heaven. And that we're raised there in the power of his Spirit, even as we come to the Lord's Supper. We raise our hearts, we lift our hearts, because we look to Christ in heaven. We are brought to Christ there. And notice the contrast to the Roman Catholic Mass. Whereas we recognize by honoring God's covenant, we approach him in heaven, spiritually in the power of the Spirit. The Catechism says this regarding the Roman Catholic Mass. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. You see the difference? To honor God's covenant at the Lord's table is to recognize that when we approach his table, we are approaching a heavenly table before our heavenly king, Christ seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. But Rome says not that we approach him in heaven, but that Christ is brought down here. Bodily that we might partake of Him. It's for this reason it speaks of the Roman Catholic Mass, rightfully so, as a condemnable idolatry. Right? It's to deny who Christ is, in his glory, in his power, where he desires to be worshipped in heaven, not on earth, and in an earthly form. Christ has gone not into a earthly temple, but into a heavenly temple. Our calling is not an earthly calling, but a heavenly calling. We desire not an earthly country, but a heavenly country. This is what the author of Hebrews is calling us to. And therefore, we honor God's covenant by first recognizing the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and secondly, by recognizing that our worship is to be done in heaven before a heavenly table. Third. We honor God's covenant at the Lord's table by approaching in faith, right? And this follows from what we've already said, right? How then do we approach a table that we cannot necessarily see, right? The Lord's table, while we do see the bread and the wine, they're signs and seals of a heavenly spiritual reality. And therefore, to properly approach the Lord's table, to honor God's covenant at the Lord's table, is to approach in faith by trusting God in what God has done. Again, this is reflected for us in the Catechism under question 81. Right, who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. We honor God's covenant by coming in faith to his table. Faith, at the heart of what true faith is, is trust. And This goes back to an earlier uh, question and answer in the catechism. What is true faith? And it speaks there of three elements to true faith. There is first knowledge. I know what God has said. There's then consent. I, I approve of that. I believe that it is true. And then there is wholehearted trust. And I trust that what he has said and what is true is true for me. That indeed my sins are forgiven. That they have been pardoned by the blood of Christ. And therefore it is in faith that we come to the Lord's table. Again, this is something that we see reflected in Hebrews. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11. Likely well-known verses, but there it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? As we approach God's table, we recognize that the bread and the wine are signs and seals of an unseen spiritual reality. And therefore, to partake of those unseen spiritual realities, we must do so by the mouth of faith. By partaking of it by faith. If you think back also to the contrast that the author of Hebrews is drawing on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would offer up a sacrifice on behalf of God's people, he would then bring the blood behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And he, by going behind the curtain, he would go out of the sight of God's people. They could no longer see him, right? And therefore, they trusted that the blood that was sprinkled, though they could not see it, was a sign and seal of their, uh, of their forgiveness, of their pardon before God so too Jesus Christ has gone beyond a greater veil, not a veil placed on on an earthly temple, but he has gone behind the veil into heaven. And though he is out of sight, nevertheless, we can trust that he is there for us as our great high priest, whose blood has sprinkled clean, the heavenly altar that we might find forgiveness and the true pardon from all of our sins. To honor God's covenant then is to come Believing that Christ's blood was shed once for all. Believing that we are coming before him in heaven. And believing uh, by by coming before him in faith. Fourthly, let me be brief here. Fourthly, we honor God's covenant at the Lord's table by going there for help. By going there for help. Again, this is reflected in the catechism. When it says that we we approach rejecting ourselves, displeased with ourselves, but desiring more and more to strengthen our faith and to lead a better life, to live for God's glory, right? We approach God's throne. We come before him in heaven. We partake of this heavenly meal in order that we might be helped, that we might be strengthened. Again, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 reflects this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, right, that's our calling and that's difficult, right, holding something fast requires strength, right, it requires a grip on something and we therefore to hold something fast need to be strengthened in order to do so. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? We honor God's covenant by approaching him for help, to have our faith strengthened, looking to him to do so, and nowhere else. And finally, And fifthly, we honor God's covenant at the Lord's table by guarding God's table from unbelievers. This is the final question that the catechism talks about in question 82. Right, ask the question, should those who, uh, by their profession and their lives, show and demonstrate that they are unbelievers and ungodly, should such people be admitted to the Lord's table? And the Catechism says no, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform. Their lives Now, important point here is that the Catechism highlights what is visible, right? We can never perceive somebody's heart. Uh, and, and that's exactly actually what the Canons of Dort say, another of our confessions. Canons of Dort, um, Headings 3 and 4, Article 15, says this, Following the example of the apostles, we are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives. For the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us. We ought never to judge the inner chambers or or think that we can judge the inner chambers of someone's heart. We cannot perceive those things. We cannot know them. God sees, right? And our hearts must be right before God. Nothing um, escapes his sight. But we cannot judge one another based upon the inner chambers of our hearts. Instead, we do, as Jesus says, to judge the perceptible or the fruit that we can perceive. And that's what the Catechism is saying here, right? Should those admitted to the Lord's Supper who show, who demonstrate, who make visible by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly. And so on the basis of what we can perceive and see, the church is called Specifically, the elders in the congregation are called then to exclude those who show by the fruit of their lives and their profession that they are unbelieving and ungodly. They ought not to partake of the Lord's Supper because it is a family meal. Such people need to know Christ and need to approach the table in faith, trusting in Him if they are to do so properly. Now, much more can be said, but we can see here something of what it looks like to honor God's covenant, right, that God would meet with us, that God would invite us to to be with him. He might be our God, we might be his people. We honor God's covenant by resting in the fact that Christ's blood was shed once for all and therefore I can have peace with God. We honor God's covenant by recognizing I am not approaching him here on earth but ultimately in heaven where Christ has gone as a forerunner on my behalf and to which he is drawing me and bringing me by his grace and by the power of his spirit. We honor God's covenant as we approach the table of the Lord in faith, trusting with all of our heart that Jesus' blood has truly pardoned me from all of my guilt, has made me right with God. We honor God's covenant as we approach God's table seeking help, seeking to be strengthened that we might hold fast our confession unto the end. No matter what may come in this life, my strength comes from the Lord. Jesus is my strength. He is my rock. He is my refuge. And therefore, I desire to have my faith strengthened, to lead a better life for His glory. I approach His table for help. And finally, we honor God's covenant by excluding those who would bring God's wrath upon his congregation who would participate in this heavenly family meal unworthily. And we do so not by judging the heart, which is beyond our sight, but by judging the fruit of what has been done. And yet as we judge and look at one another, we are to do so in the most favorable way. And in the most charitable way to those who outwardly profess their faith, right? If uh, If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you confess that reality, then you shall be saved, as the Apostle Paul says. On that basis of that profession, and those then who desire to walk with Christ and to live for him, though however weak our efforts may be, we make but a small beginning, as the catechism reminds us. Yet, on the basis of that, we then judge one another. And therefore, we honor God's covenant. We receive wonderful benefits for this life as it leads us to the life to come into the heavenly places that Christ has won for us. It is this, it is our heavenly calling that all of this works towards. And it's that heavenly country that we desire that Christ is bringing us to. The Lord's Supper, just to come to a conclusion here then, is the meal of that heavenly country. Last week we had said that it is the new wine of the new creation. It is the meal of the heavenly country where Christ has gone already. He's nourishing us with the strength of heaven. And therefore, we go with his power, his strength, his spirit, enlivening every single step as we go to be where he is in the heavenly places before our God for his glory and our joy. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your covenant, a covenant sealed, covenant guaranteed by your word. Father, as we think about honoring you as the Lord of our, of our lives, as our God, we ask, Father, that we would rest in the once for all sacrifice of Christ, that we, our minds would be set not on earthly things, but on heavenly things, that we would approach you in faith, trusting in the blood of Christ, and that we would trust in you for our help as well, looking for strength that only comes from you. Father, thank you for uh, these wonderful things that you've given to us. We pray that they would strengthen us even in the week ahead. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.